Hello, and welcome to another edition of S'mores by Fireside. As always, you can learn more about our marketing services for small businesses at meetfireside.com. You can click on the S'mores tab and find all of these episodes in video form, and you can find us in podcast form wherever you like to download your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Stephanie Jones from Feed Media. Steph, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Dax. Thanks so much for having me on. Feed Media has been around about 17 years. We are a public relations and marketing agency based in Denver, but work all over the world. We look at PR as much more than just media relations. It's how do we positively impact the public in any way necessary? And that's evolved a lot over the years. We used to be straight media and now we're media content influencers. Probably have gone from having two tools in my tool belt to now having about 15, but it's been a really exciting time in the PR world and just really pleased to be here with you. Thanks. That's lovely. In what way then has that changed, right? So you started off with two tools. What were those at the beginning and and what does the armory look like now? 17 years ago, it was really kind of traditional media. So we had newspapers and magazines and TV and radio, right? Like very kind of what we kind of consider traditional media. And over the last decade and a half, the opportunities for public relations have grown greatly. We now, obviously, you know, we do a lot of content creation. We write byline articles on behalf of executives that we work for to give them uh, thought leadership opportunities. We work with influencers depending on the industry. So we do a lot in uh, travel and tourism. And so influencers travel to our client locations and post content, create content, influence their audiences. So we just have a lot more opportunities to create positive perceptions of our clients than we have in the past. Do you think, so obviously in that 17 years, you've gone through the majority of the the creation and the rise of the online world over kind of traditional press. Has that made your job easier or harder? I think it's made it more interesting (laughs) instead of saying easier or harder. You know, our job is to essentially create interest in our clients' businesses. And so I think one of the examples might be Let's say you own an architecture firm and you are um, you have four areas of specialization. You are trying to create interest in your business and in your skill set that differentiates you from the competition. Most people think an architecture firm just writes up pretty pictures, right? But if you could showcase some of the things that you do differently, right? The way that you work differently. Maybe you have an interior design part of your business. Maybe your agency integrates your different practice areas. So if you're designing a senior living community, you bring in your restaurant practice area to design a really high-end dining experience. Or maybe you bring in lessons learned from academic university systems. And so you're bringing in all these thought leaders from different parts of your business. And through PR, we can tell that story. And that's actually a story we created. We work with a really great architecture firm and they do have a specialization area in senior living. And so we started showcasing how they bring in other experts in other practice areas and how that then kind of ends up in the end result that it's much, much higher end, much more appealing than it would have been if we were just experts in senior living. So we tell those stories through often the client's voice. So the community or the developer tells about how working with this firm was totally different and the outcome is so much better. And so when you are then considering hiring an architecture firm and you read that story, you think, wow, that sounds like what I want. I think I'm going to call them. And so PR puts those stories out in ways that are highly compelling in order to get people interested in your business or your service or your product. So you talk about creating those stories. Do you find usually the customers know the story 
they want to put out or are you really the driver behind what the story is that they should tell? Probably half and half. Really depends on the business, but oftentimes someone will come to us and say, I know exactly what I want to have known about my company. And then we'll kind of peel back the layers of the onion and say, yeah, we know that's your story, but what's really going to get people excited is actually this thing over here. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a combination of the two. You know, a founder or CEO will say, you know, I've got maybe four or five different ideas and we'll say, we like these three. And then we'll kind of take those forward. I'd probably say about 80% of the time, the story that they think they want to tell is not the one that's most compelling to outside audiences. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the public relations is interesting. People have the, the misinterpretation that press are just dying to write about your company. Like why aren't reporters writing about me? And so a CEO or sometimes a head of marketing will just, you know, call up a reporter at the New York times and say, why, why don't you write a story about me? And that's just not how it works. You have to be really thoughtful. You have to know everything about that reporter. So the New York Times is a great example. We have had uh, one of our clients, Taos Ski Valley, which is a ski area in New Mexico, which is the first certified B Corp ski area. So they're very environmentally conscious. They're very community centric. And we wanted them to write a story about Taos Ski Valley, but we had to approach the right reporter who was interested in sustainability mm -hmm. with the story about them being the first B Corp. And then we had to explain why B Corp was important. And then we had to create a story around this idea that consumers are and are going to continue to choose their travel destinations based on voting with their wallet. So if I have a choice of 10 ski areas, but one of them is doing extraordinary work in the community and they're practicing sustainability efforts and they are green and they are doing good in the world, why would I pick these nine if this one is doing good, right? So I can vote with my wallet. And so by mm -hmm. putting a story in the New York Times about sustainability in the ski industry and this ski area kind of leading the way, people then say like, well, I want to go there because I'm going to go skiing anyway. So I'm going to go to the place where I can feel good about spending my dollars. Mm -hmm. So kind of creating that story, not just you should write about this ski area, but like we know that you reporter like sustainability stories. We know you like a human interest angle. We know you write about travel. So this story is for you. It's not just for anybody. We know what you like, we know how you like to write, and we know that this is the kind of story that you would be interested in. So it's really like a very high level sales effort. You have to find the right buyer. You have to know what their pain point is and you have to deliver a solution that's exactly what they wanted. And maybe they didn't even know they wanted it. Mm. So that story has to be something that they feel very excited about placing and, and informing their readers with. And in a case like that, how long would you have had a relationship with a reporter like that or, or been keeping a reporter like that on your radar? Yeah, so that, we've had Towski Valley's had two uh, front page of the travel section features in the New York Times over the past seven years, two different story angles. But the most recent one, which was, a, you know, why you should travel here, just phenomenal story, it took a year. So from the kind of the first time we spoke about it, and then we kind of refined the story with them, and then they came out and visited, and that's called a FAM trip, F-A-M, familiarity trip. And so we host them, and we give them all the best experiences, and we hook them up with the CEO and the snowmaking team, and kind of talk about all the things that make Taos a B Corp. And then they send a photographer out two months later, and the photographer photographs all those things. And then we do six rounds of what's called fact checking, which is, you know, what are the gallons of water conserved every year? And give me the right spelling of that guy's name. And that goes on for weeks. And then you have like a three-week period where it goes through editorial cycles and then it shows up. But I mean, that could be anywhere between three months and a year, depending on the outlet. I mean, online media, you know, with something with BuzzFeed, we'll do an article. We, you and I could do an interview today and they would publish it this afternoon. 
Right. So it just depends on the, the cycle of the media outlet. But for something like Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, those generally take a longer cycle. But once, you know, reporters interested, they are not going to be spending their time on your story unless they're really going to write something because they have very limited time. Right. So I was going to ask then about these fam trips. I think several people who've done bits and pieces in marketing are probably familiar with the concept. I was going to ask, do you have some sort of expectation around that? And I suppose, though, you're right. If the reporter doesn't necessarily feel like they're particularly interested in that subject, it's probably more of a waste of their time to take a free trip and, and not have the intention of being involved somehow. Yeah, I think we, we come into the kind of the fake trip category when we're talking about influencers. And we can talk about that a little bit more too. Journalists fall into usually one of two buckets or sometimes both. They're either on staff, which means they only write for that media outlet, or they are considered a freelancer. And a freelancer writes for a lot of different media outlets. And we love the freelancer because if we have them, we did a fam trip to a private island of the Bahamas with one of our clients. And we had eight different press fly in from all over the world. And we were there for four days. And we kind of gave them this experience. And the freelancers wrote about the island three and four and five times for different media outlets because they come on one trip and they get paid five times every article they write they're getting paid if you're mm -hmm. on staff you get a salary you're not getting paid per story you're just paid so you're going to write one story and you're going to be done so the freelancer in travel media in particular is a much better value for my clients because they might write for Condé Nast Traveler and then an in-flight magazine and then maybe like a luxury magazine in their home market whereas the staff reporter is just writing the one so um, with influencers, we, we often get inbounds where they say, oh, hey, I'd love to come check out your property. And I'm a big time influencer. And we go look at them and they have, you know, maybe they have 30 or 40,000 followers, but we have some tools that allow us to dig deep and find out how much they post and who their followers are. So maybe they say, I want to go on this luxury trip to your island. And when we dig into them, it's 80% of their followers are college students and their top interests are beer and football. And we're like, mm, probably not our audience. Mm -hmm. So influencers have become a really interesting part. There are some absolutely extraordinary influencers with true influence. And I mean that. This Bahamas trip, as an example, we had an influencer come down and post about it. And we had over the course of that four days, I think we increased our follower numbers over 150,000 people. Wow. Who, this person had millions of followers. And by posting about our property, all of her followers followed our property. And then she did a swipe up function on her story where you could swipe up and actually like book a trip. And so we had over you know 80 people swipe up and contact this travel company. So like that's a really exciting tool that we're using now where in that case, all of the influencers that participated did so on a trade basis. So we didn't pay them any cash. They got to come on the trip. They got to showcase this kind of lifestyle content and then they posted about it and we we negotiate that up front also i think it's an interesting part of it is before we allow them to come on the trip we have a contract that states in exchange for this trip which is valued at xxx we request the following and it's you know three posts on your instagram feed up to eight different stories we want a blog post if you have a blog and so we kind of lay out in advance kind of what the content pieces will be but they have the choice of what it looks like, what it feels like. We always want it to be very authentic. We don't dictate what they say or how they say it. It's a really exciting part of what we're doing for travel and consumer brands, but also even things like um, technology. Um, there's these you know, things like, like unboxing videos, right? Where you ship somebody your product and then somebody opens it and talks about what it's like and what it feels like. And you know, those are influencers as well. It sounds a bit though, I think from experience, the influencer world's a bit of the wild west. 
to your point about having tools for, for tracking, any advice for the smaller business owner that might be contemplating doing something with influencers on a smaller budget? Absolutely. I, I don't think you have to have fancy tools. I think it's, it's a lot easier. And particularly when you're dealing with a trip that's $30,000, you want to be really, really careful about getting the right person to come. But I think if for a small business owner, influencers are most effective among kind of a, a consumer audience, right? So if you have a professional service, probably an influencer is not the best way to go. They tend to be fashion, lifestyle, they tend to be travel, tourism, you know, spirits brands really like working with influencers because they can, you know, say, oh, look, I love Kahlua in my coffee in the morning. And then you're like, oh, I should have Kahlua in my coffee in the morning on a Tuesday. But for a, for a professional services, it's a little bit more nuanced. I think the best way to go about looking at an influencer is to go to their content and look at their content. Does it feel professional? Does it feel produced? Are they getting a lot of engagement? So you can see like if they have 1.2 million followers, but they only get six likes, that's a good way of gauging whether or not they have purchased those followers, which means they're not true influencers. They've just bought a lot of followers. There's, you know, some nuance there, but you can really do a really good job of spending five minutes on these influencers channels and just looking at their content and their engagement and how often are they posting and are the posts high quality? Is the photography good? That kind of thing. Mm, that's interesting. So on, on the broader topic then of, of small businesses, I feel like a lot of small businesses, you know, they start with their marketing with things like AdWords and they might create a blog. They might do a couple of videos and things these days and try and create a Facebook page. It doesn't strike me a lot of small business owners immediately think about calling a, a PR agency. Uh, where should that fit in into their, uh, into their life cycle of building and growing a business? It's such a good question. Let me, uh, I think this is really helpful when I try to explain kind of where PR falls. I'm just going to do my kind of quick overview. We look at media in three buckets. And so if you are a business owner, you've got owned media. And owned media is anything that is kind of your um, domain. You've got a website, you've got maybe a blog, you've got an email newsletter, you've got your social channels. You own those pieces of content and you are then putting together those pieces. So there's owned media and then there is paid media and that's any paid search, paid ads, digital ads. And then there's earned media. And, and we're in the earned category and the owned category. We don't plan the paid there are much smarter people like UDAX who, who do the paid media, but for the earned, earned means you're not paying for it, you are earning it. And so the earned media is essentially the most powerful word of mouth you can get. So word of mouth is generally a one-to-one. -one. I tell you that I absolutely love this restaurant and you should go eat there. And then maybe you go eat there and you tell one or two people. And so word of mouth is incredibly powerful. PR leverages word of mouth, but instead of one-to-one, -one, it can be one-to-a-million or one-to-40,000. And so when you, let's just use traditional media, you open up a magazine and one side of the magazine is a full-page review of this restaurant you keep hearing about and it's a four out of four star, right? You, as a reader, have bought this magazine because you desperately want to consume that third-party content. The other side is an ad for a different restaurant. And your brain is ignoring that ad because it's something that you have to tolerate in order to read this piece. Mm -hmm. So when you read this review of this restaurant, instead of me telling you you should eat there, that editor has just told a half a million people you should eat here. So because that editor and that magazine are trusted advisors, by reading that, you then, as a reader, even though you don't know this editor, say, oh, I just read this amazing review and I'm going to go. So that's what PR is. It's the, it's the strongest word of mouth you can get created through third-party experts. And so I think when you're a small business owner and you think about 
how much time you're spending on these one-to-one sales conversations. Like you have to call every single person up. You have to say, do you want to talk to me about my company? And do you want to talk to me about my service? And 90% of the time, they're probably going to say, no, thank you. I'm busy. I can't. I don't have time. PR puts that out and says, this service is incredible. And this is what it's going to do for your business. And I tried it and I loved it. And you will too. People start going, hey, I just read this article about you. Can we talk about your service? Because I feel like I need it. And so that is the most valuable thing is the person calling you and saying, I think I need what you have instead of you calling and saying, you need what I have. Mm, Okay. And so is it possible for a small business owner, you think, to make a difference in PR without, uh, you know, having to spend tens of thousands of dollars? Yeah, I just think it's very nuanced, right? So if you're a small business owner and you, let's say you're in a a small to medium town, right? You're going to have probably five media outlets that have an enormous amount of influence. Usually it is your big local newspaper. So Mm -hmm. in Denver, it's the Denver Post. And then you usually have a significant you know, business outlet. So in Denver, it's the Denver Business Journal and Colorado Biz Magazine. And then you also have a lifestyle media. So we, in Denver, we have 303 and we have Denver Life and we have 5280 Magazine. And so there's usually five or six kind of primary media outlets. And then knowing your business, you can figure out who you want to pitch. So if you have an accounting firm or you have a law firm, you would probably want to go with the, the newspaper and the, the business journal. If you have a consumer, like say you have a, um, a day spa or you have a cannabis product, you would want to go lifestyle route. But, but like a cannabis product or a day spa could also be a business story. So just because you, let's say you have, um, let's just use the day spa example. You could say, I want to be in this lifestyle magazine because I want to showcase all the amazing services we have that nobody else has. And I'm going to use before and afters to prove how great this is. But we're also right now um, going out and acquiring other businesses. And so we are growing and we are expanding our footprint. And so the business journal would be interested in that side of it. Business journal is not interested in the services you provide. They're interested in your growth. Mm. The lifestyle magazine is not interested in your growth. They're interested in the services you provide. So we always look at every client kind of like a pie. And if you slice the pie, some pies have 18 pieces and some might only have three, but the three are bigger. And each slice is a different story angle. And so coming up with your story angles, you know, you might say like, I have a consumer angle and I have a business angle. I've also got an influencer side and you know, maybe you want to do some free sampling. Um, like if you owned this, this day spa, you could say to one of the local TV anchors, hey, we're going to have you come in and get this service live on camera. And then over the course of a week, we're going to track you and see how great you look. And by the end of the week, you can talk about the experience. So that's getting a third party credible individual to experience your service and then say, oh my gosh, look how great I look. So yeah, it's a powerful it's, demonstration. It's a really powerful way of you know, kind of getting that, you know, just credibility out to your prospects. And you know, if you are a small business owner, you can do that on your own. You just have to, you can't just say, write about my company. You have to say, I have an idea. Let's talk about it. It's more of a collaboration than a, why aren't you writing about me? Right. That makes sense. You're going with something that they can at least find some sort of seed or foothold in mm-hmm. that they can then grow based on their interest. So if you have clients where they have these, you know, three or four different pies, for instance, that, that slices of pie that are different possible angles. Do you staff an account with different people who have different areas of expertise or generally when somebody supports an account, are they capable of going to any of those types of outlets? We staff kind of based on expertise and background. You know, a lot of it is the relationship with the reporter, but not always the way that reporters are changing at media outlets. We have to just be really good at creating relationships based on pitching good stories. But so we have a consumer side, which is hospitality and travel and restaurants and consumer brands. And then we have a tech side. 
So we have you know, software and B2B services. And so lots of people work on both, but there are some people who just really love the hospitality side. And there are some people that really love the tech side, but there are some people that cross over. I think for a publicist, your job is to be able to figure out how many pieces of pie there are and then get your server out and who am I going to serve this piece to and who am I going to serve this piece to? And there's a, there's a lot of nuance. It's, it's sales, right? We're selling your story and we're trying to sell it in a way that is most compelling and we're selling it to an audience that is getting lots and lots of pieces of pie given to them and they're having to choose which one they want. And so we always want our pie to just be the most delicious. That's a great analogy. I'm hungry now. <laughs> why did you start in PR and why, why feed media? So I started out, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and in the political climate there, pretty much everyone grows up and wants to work on Capitol Hill. And so I was no different and went to school as a poli-sci communications major and wanted to be a press secretary in a congressional office, but could not get a job unless you are the niece or nephew or a child of a very large donor, uh, you don't get those jobs. So I ended up being a junior level lobbyist at an environmental nonprofit in DC. And I was there for about two years and very quickly determined that was not for me. So packed up and moved to Denver one day. And if I don't want to be a lobbyist and I have a poli-sci and communications degree, what am I going to do with that? And I got to Denver and there was a job opening uh, for a a PR agency that was looking for an entry-level person. And I wrote, I remember back in the day of the cover letter, I wrote a long cover letter about how lobbying and PR were so similar because in lobbying, you were trying to convince usually a congressman Uh, to vote a certain way. And oftentimes they didn't want to vote that way. And it was your job to convince them that they should. And in PR, you're working with reporters who generally don't want your story and you have to convince them that they want to write about this, even though they don't. So it's the convincing part. And I got the job and made coffee and copies for six months. And because I was employee number three, I ended up getting promoted fairly quickly and um, ended up growing into a, a leadership role there and then went to another agency. So I had two multinational agencies I had worked for and then went to corporate. And then one day was at a wedding with my husband. It's so cliche. And on a napkin, he said, what would you do if uh, if we won the lottery? And I said, I think I would just do PR for free. He was like, really? Well, how much could you charge? And I gave him a number and he did the math. And he said, well, if you take four weeks of vacation, which I had never taken in my life and you charge that and you only work 40 hours a week, which I had also never done in my life. I only ever worked 65. He said, you will make two and a half times what you're making right now. So we left the wedding and that was on Saturday. And on Monday, I quit my job and hung out a shingle and I thought it would just be me. And over the years, I have brought on a team of very talented publicists. The PR world has changed a lot. We were one of the first that started using a heavy contractor model. A lot of agencies declined to do that and they have all kind of shrunk and died as more talent goes and wants more freedom. And we were the first, at least in Colorado, to start doing that. So it's been an exciting evolution. We have 22 people on our team and high, high level. We don't hire junior people. Everyone's got at least eight years of experience. So that's something that really sets us apart and allows us to, to really bring on the best talent. You mentioned your uh, husband, for those of in our audience who have not the pleasure to meet Derek. Derek also works in, in feed media. Any thoughts or advice to, uh, to couples working together in their business? Well, so we hear from couples all the time who say, oh, I could never work with my spouse. And I I understand that. I do. I get it. Derek and I just so happen to have very distinctive skill sets. 
and we don't tend to overlap. He's incredibly analytical. He's great with the finances. He was an aerospace engineer, so he literally was a rocket scientist. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely kind of the, the operational brain of the team. And then I am much more client side and creative and storytelling. And so before we did this, we talked to a lot of couples who ran companies together. And what they all said was, you have to make sure that you don't overlap. You have to very defined areas because if you overlap it becomes a moment where who's in charge right somebody has to make the decision so we work incredibly well together i can't imagine doing this without him but i do understand that it's not for everybody we really love it and it has been an extraordinary enhancement to our life we've been working together now six years and since derek came on to kind of run the operational side the agency has has doubled and then some so it's uh, it's been really really excellent for us but that does not mean it's for everyone it just works really well for us that's wonderful i think the not overlapping piece is a is a good piece of advice there as we uh, start to wrap up here i'm curious for you to con- either to continue to learn or to continue to keep up your motivation and your energy are you a member of any kind of uh, groups or organizations that help you do that yeah i uh, i'm a voracious reader and i like to read things that aren't about my industry I get a daily from Inc. Magazine. I get a daily from Fast Company. Um, I like going to innovation conferences, not talking about PR, but talking about companies that innovate and how and ideation. And for me, that's what gets me really excited. I will often steal ideas. I'll see like a really great idea that, you know, some company nowhere near what I work on did something really interesting. And I'll say, oh, I know how I can apply that to one of my clients. So for me, the PR is is so exciting because it is such a, instantaneous business driver. But what I get excited about is helping our clients innovate their business. And PR is a part of that. I would say that my my professional development happens primarily in kind of reading about innovation. I'm not a member of industry. I won't name any, but I'm not a member of the industry organizations I, I used to be. And I did find that it was a lot of people looking for jobs and not a lot of people talking about doing good work. So I'm a part of several entrepreneurial groups, both with women, but also kind of mixed company. Uh, I like being around people who are in other industries and learning about their industries and how they work. Because I think, you know, PR is, you know, it's sometimes kind of siloed, you know, you're in, you're in marketing. And so you don't get to talk about technology and you don't get to talk about kind of uh, other people who are doing cool stuff. And so for me, I get really excited when I read a story about a company that's done something that's changed in industry. I love disruptors, you know, people who aren't afraid to take risks. That's, that's really what gets me excited, but I'm not, not really an industry association joiner. No, fair. And it's actually been an interesting common thread, I think, in a lot of these conversations that a lot of those people who I think are driving their businesses don't spend a lot of time talking to a lot of people in their own industry, but instead are just generally looking at innovation. Across the, uh, across the landscape. Within the paid media world, we'll often look at paid media from other countries because the styles are a little bit different. And of course, in paid media, the job is to stand out against all the insane amount of advertising noise at the moment. And so finding an angle or a tone or a style that isn't usually in that market makes a big difference. So I, I think there's, there's a common thread there forming from, from these discussions. Are there countries where you find that that paid media innovation is happening more quickly than in others? Good question. I actually, I may be a little bit biased, obviously, being from England originally, but I, but I do think England has innovated in a great way around the public service announcement, the mm. ad. 
for the last 30, 40 years, we've had a campaign running here against drink driving. And I see drink driving in, in my generation and the younger generations to be at the lowest level in comparison to most other countries that I, uh, that I visit, particularly, I think, in comparison to large parts of, of the US. And to tell a story for three, four decades and get it to resonate with every generation is exceptionally difficult. And so the way that's had to evolve and the way it keeps finding its mark consistently, I think, is, uh, is key. And we've seen it with the corona pandemic. We've seen it with tremendous amount of cases. And, that, and so I think England's very much ahead there. I think France, from what I can see, has a lot of TV advertising that is generally quite varied, which is where there's, of course, a lot of strength. I find a lot of the national US paid media to be quite samey. I think particularly in the B2B space, I think American market's more formal in B2B. There's an accepted style, and I don't think people like to go outside of that, particularly if they're a large corporation. And I think just by being a little bit more human and maybe bringing in a little bit of of cheek or or style from another uh, nationality or culture can help find find a way through. But every country has something, but I do think England stands ahead on PSAs. I have another question for you. I know it's your, I know it's your interview, but are there brands that you think are doing a really good job globally that you feel like they have brought in that kind of cheek or humor or humanity? Good question. Brands that I think are doing well kind of resonates back to a point you said earlier about trying to find some sort of story and tell part of a bigger message. Like I look at the work that Dove has done, for instance, you know, they've really tried to embrace you know, a normal, natural feeling about a human body. And I think they haven't always hit the mark. They've created a lot of controversy and a lot of the different things that they've done. But overall, I think they've, they've done a good job by humanizing something that people don't always like to talk about. I'm in England at the moment, and there was a TV ad on last night for um, incontinence pads for older ladies, for instance. And it's fascinating to see how they have taken that message and with perfect comfort, they have put it onto the screens in England, talking about really quite personal aspects of that as opposed to just the features and benefits of that product. That certainly, that degree of, of kind of cheek and brashness is, is making them stand out there. And I hate to say it, but I do think the, some of the Super Bowl ads in the US is where yeah. we see most innovation. You might it's remember okay, my though, wife. It's, only, it's really only that night, you know, like I don't really watch ads ever except that night because I do feel like that's going to be the best of the best. And I wish I would see that all year long, but that is where they show the most creativity. They take the most risks. Yeah. They invest them in most dollars for sure. Yeah. And I think also brands are willing to think a little bit differently, right? They know they're going to be spending at least 10, 20, 30 million dollars on production and delivery of that ad. And so they know it has to be different. You know, my wife, Sarah, she is the first ever director where her first ever TV ad was a Super Bowl ad. I don't think that's ever happened before. And I think what she did with her TV ad was something that was quite different at the time, which was took something as sterile as cable TV and used that environment of the Super Bowl in order to show people watching TV together as a family. And I think if you can find whatever that cultural moment is and what people are looking for then, then that's probably the job of a good disruptive TV ad. It's almost finding the trend before people feel the trend is, is the trend. Mm. Mm. Can I tell a story about your wife? It's a PR story. Yeah. Okay. It's a really good one. I've used this a couple of times. I forgot about it. So you just mentioned her. So the way I met 
Sarah is she was leading a creative web development agency and I was doing PR for them. And Sarah is and was the most tenacious salesperson I have ever met in my life. You just don't say no to her. And she was telling the story about how she had um, been pitching the Denver Broncos over and over and over. And she really wanted to get their website business. And she had been calling the guy who was the head of it over and over. And finally, you know, the 17th time she called him and said, hey, can we talk about your website? He said, look, we are going to put out an RFP for the website. I'm not going to hire you. She's like, I'll tell you what, if you let me respond to it, I will never call you again. And he said, deal. So she got this RFP and she and her team put together this response that was very thoughtful and very creative. And at the end of the day, her agency, this tiny agency in Denver, who wasn't even going to be considered, got selected. And when we went back to the guy to say, like, why did you pick this small agency in Denver? He said, every other agency, all these huge, big global agencies came to us and said, we're going to do for you what we did for the Raiders, or we're going to do for you what we did for the Chargers. And, and Sarah's proposal was the only one that was completely unique. It, we, nothing that, that they were presenting was something that was in another deck. Everybody else was like, we're going to have this cookie cutter. And Sarah's was, we've never done this before. So we're going to just completely remove everything that we know, and we're going to put together what we think would be the best website for you. So I took that story and said, instead of saying like Sarah's firm is really innovative and creative, we had the guy from the Broncos tell the story about how he was not going to consider this small Denver agency and he was only going to go with a big New York firm, but everybody else had brought these ideas that had been seen before and Sarah's agency came with such creative, unique, new, fresh ideas that he picked that agency. And so that was the front page of the Denver Post, big picture of this guy talking about how he had picked this Denver agency and how proud they were and how great Sarah was. But like, it wasn't like, the PR story wasn't like, this is a great agency. The PR story was telling the story about why the Broncos, one of the biggest NFL franchises in the world, would instead of going the big national route, pick the small guy. And it wasn't like a heartstringy thing. It was just that they were the best. It's like from the power of that story, Sarah's phone started ringing a lot after that. But she was such a great part of that story. Everyone loves the idea of like, I, stop calling me, please. I say, you can respond as long as you swear you'll never call me again. And she said, I'll never call you again. And so it's just a, I don't know if you ever heard that story, but it's a great one. Well, it certainly resonates with me that you don't say no to Sarah. I mean, that's, that's how <laughs> I ended up getting married. That's for sure. Sarah is actually, for those listening, a, a fractional COO and fractional CMO now at lovemondayteam.com. Steph, it's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is. Is there a piece of advice, either related to PR or just generally as being a business owner, that you'd leave the audience with? I would say if being a business owner, you get wrapped up in the day-to-day. -day. Somebody told me a couple of years ago, because I, before Derek had come on, my husband had come on to help me with this, I was getting incredibly overwhelmed. And I was working in the agency all the time. I was just in it all the time. And somebody said to me once, you have to stop working in the agency so you can work on the agency. You have to be the visionary. You have to be driving the vehicle. You can't be under the hood fixing it. You have to be driving it and let somebody else fix it. So I try to remind myself all the time that I need to work on my business. I, don't, I shouldn't be working in my business because I have a team of people who I trust, who I know can do that. But I think it's always that the founder's conundrum is you want to do the day to day and you want to do it the best. But if you're going to grow and if you're going to advance, you really have to be the one looking at the future and not looking at what's happening today. It's 
one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? Is step away and just hand down control to the, to the individuals and you have. It's hard. Yeah. Steph, thank you very much. Where can people find out more about you and feed? Feedmedia.com. Uh, we have feed media PR on our social channels, Facebook and Instagram and our website as well. Great. Thank you everybody for watching or listening. As always, you can find out more at meetfireside.com and watch or listen to any of these episodes by clicking on the s'mores tab. Steph, thank you very much. Thanks, Tex.